cause death by strangulation and manner is homicide. All you see is obsession and speculation over the bumper stickers on her van. Who would dislike Gabby Petito so desperately in Wyoming, in one of the most isolated places in Wyoming, to wrap their hands around her throat and choke the life out of her? What does it take to get a more in-depth look into the week's top local news stories? The Debrief brings you inside for a one-on-one -on -one conversation with our reporters every week, right here, right now. The Debrief. Welcome to The Debrief. I'm Paisy Chen. It's been nearly a month since the body of Gabby Petito was found in a remote section of Grand Teton National Park. Quickly, officials ruled it a homicide, but how she was killed, unclear until this week. The manner of death of Gabrielle Lenora Petito, we find the cause and manner to be cause death by strangulation and manner uh, is homicide. That's Teton County Coroner Brent Blue breaking the news that Petito was choked to death sometime in late August. That's around the same time she was last seen alive at a restaurant with her fiance, Brian Laundrie. And when her van was spotted in the campground where her body was ultimately found, but you already know those details, just like you know that Laundrie is on the run, the only person of interest in her disappearance. Today, we're looking into why everyone has been following this case, but others don't get the same attention with the team behind Wondery's The Vanish podcast. But first, we wanted to take a deeper look at the autopsy report, so we sat down with Professor Joseph Morgan, a forensics expert at Jacksonville State University. What, what do you think was most important about what he said, Joseph? When he had the press conference yesterday, Dr. Blue actually stated that Gabby's death, the cause of death, and let's keep that in mind, it's a cause, we already had a manner. Her cause of death was asphyxia. And asphyxia, it's a very broad term. It, it can come from everything from suffocation to strangulation to ligature strangulation to compression even to a certain degree. But let's back up just a little bit and think about the manner. The day that they did this autopsy, it was on a Tuesday. And, you know, I got to tell you, they couldn't get out the door quick enough that afternoon to give us the manner of death. There's five manners of death. And when they shot out of there, they specifically said, this is a homicide. And that's very powerful. And I'll tell you why. Uh, to rule something as a homicide in the purest definition literally means death at, a, at the hands of another. So we knew that they had drawn some kind of conclusion in the autopsy room that there was something. And we're talking about a young lady whose body has been down for three to four weeks, according to the coroner. They saw something so glaring, even in that decomposed state, that they were able that afternoon with no further testing to say this is a homicide. The problem arose for us at, on the outside, not on the inside, it lacks specificity. And that brings us to the cause that he came to yesterday. And initially, you know, I kind of interpreted it as him being a little bit coy. There were questions that the reporters directed to him. Like I remember one in particular where they said, can you tell us if she had been buried? And he said, I'm going to defer to the FBI. And there were a couple of times that he did that relative to evidentiary matters. I think as it applied to DNA and all those sorts of things. But then last night, something huge happened. Dr. Blue gave an interview with Anderson Cooper. And on that show, he stated <laughs> that not only was this an asphyxial death, but it was a strangulation. And it was a strangulation via throttling. 
Now that yes. you talk about putting a fine point on something, that really narrows the field down because throttling is so very specific. He went to great lengths to even say that this was not mechanical, which essentially means that there wasn't a ligature involved. There wasn't a cord or a rope or a piece of wire or a belt or a scarf, nothing like that. When they say throttling, they're talking about the application of two hands on this young woman's throat. And most of the time in the classic sense, when you're talking about throttling, it can happen either anteriorly, that means from the front or posteriorly. We think about movies where some stranger walks up and they choke someone in some classic, but this is in the movies. My opinion is this is a face-to-face -face event. This is very intimate. Anytime you have an asphyxial death, it's one of the most horrific things that can happen because there's literally less than a foot of clearance between the perpetrator. He would have looked her in the eye and as he's literally squeezing the life out of her. So the bigger question is, and we don't have an answer to this yet, what exactly did they see specifically? Well, we had foiled a document from the Teton County um, Coroner's Office that basically was a letter signed by Dr. Blue that mm -hmm. confirmed that her manner of death was manual strangulation slash right. throttling. So right. manual strangulation would mean that there was no other instrument involved, right? Is that what you were yes. just saying before? You are absolutely right. And this is how we can kind of delineate if, if folks uh, at home will just think about this. If you take like a rope and you apply it to a surface, it's going to leave a specific mark and it'll have defined margins to it. It, it won't expand out. With a manual strangulation, people at home need to think about the surface of their hands, like contact in a surface. You're applying pressure over a large area. So I have seen cases, I can't speak to this one particularly, but I have seen cases involving throttling where you will have widespread and diffuse hemorrhage throughout the musculature. And sometimes you'll see it externally, but let's remember Gabby's been down for a while. So I don't know if they could see that, but when they were able to do a deep examination of the autopsy, they very well may have seen into the musculature, little focal areas of hemorrhage that were broad ranging. And there's something else that comes into play here. It's not just the hemorrhage that we're looking for at autopsy. We have our trachea right in the center of our throat, which is classically, you know, for lack of better terms, where a windpipe passes through. It's cartilaginous. It's kind of like, you know, our septum in our nose. Mm -hmm. That can actually fracture as well. And when you apply pressure to it. So we look for that. And also the infamous hyoid bone. Everybody wants to know about the hyoid. And it's located way, way up. Many times with manual strangulation, you'll see a fracture in the hyoid. And keep in mind, it is rare. I mean, very rare that this bone, the hyoid, gets fractured when manual strangulation is not involved. It, you don't see it most of the time in hangings. You don't see it just as like an accidental event. I've seen one that was accidental. It just doesn't happen. Most of the time, it's direct application of pressure on this specific area. So it has to be very high. There's a lot of leverage and a lot of direct pressure that's applied to it. So many people have been asking this question, including ourselves, if they were able to identify this as homicide so quickly, what took them so long to come to this autopsy ruling? The coroner has been talking to the authorities and people say, well, Morgan, obviously he has. Now, what I'm saying is he's communicating with them. And this happens a lot. The authorities were at the autopsy. I can almost guarantee an FBI evidence response team was there. This is 
make no mistake about it, this is an FBI case now. They're on the hunt for this guy. The feds are on the hunt. The U.S. Marshals are on the hunt for Mr. Laundry. They are not going to reveal any further information specific to kind of the causal factors. The feds tend to play things very close to the vest. So they're not going to release a lot of information. I'm surprised that we got what we did, but let me tell you what they did that was kind of cool. One of the statements that Dr. Blue made was the fact that in this kind of shock as well, because people have been kind of casting aspersions because they're so far out and isolated. This man sat there and said, we did a CAT scan and not just a CAT scan. We did a full body CAT scan. Most coroner's offices might do an x-ray if they have access to an x-ray machine. He did a CAT scan. Why is that so unusual? Oh, it's, it's because it's high-end equipment. Not everybody has this. And what's even more key here is the fact that he stated when asked, did her body ever leave the facility? It didn't. That means one of two things. Either they brought in a portable CAT scan, which is pretty significant, or do they have one? you know, in-house there. But, you know, the, the bigger point here is that with x-ray, you take a case now that's being documented in a two-dimensional perspective. Think about any time you've ever seen a personal x-ray, folks at home can identify with this. You'll look at it and say, what is this? I can't make heads or tails out of it. Now you go CAT scan, you're talking three-dimensional. Mm -hmm. Now you can appreciate height and depth and thickness and all those sorts of things. And this is a powerful tool at trial. One of the biggest things that happens with autopsy photography, for instance, is that the defense will say, this is too graphic. It's prejudicial. We can't show this to the jury. There's nothing prejudicial about CT scans. It's not gory. But you can appreciate, say, for instance, before you ever do the autopsy, the body's completely intact. You can appreciate the status of the hyoid bone in relation to any hemorrhage that might be there. You're not disrupting the body at all, but it's demonstrative. And that's very, very powerful. So they went to great lengths. He's also submitted trace evidence according to what he said. There's an entomologist involved, which is a bug doctor. More than likely, I'm suspecting a forensic entomologist. More than likely, if the feds are involved, the FBI, this has gone to the Smithsonian. They deal with the entomologist there. There's also a forensic anthropologist who deals with skeletons. So it's a real full court press that they're putting on. And at the end of the day, I can tell you they are going to have a boatload, a boatload of evidence that will be tied up in a very neat package. Well, let's talk about this evidence, right? They said they retrieved DNA evidence, mm -hmm. yeah. but it's going to be tricky, right, to use this in court because Brian and Gabby had been in a relationship. Right. And we don't really know what the status of the DNA evidence is because you can't just look at the body with the unaided eyes, we say, and say, okay, there's DNA evidence. I'm going to collect it. They could have taken a sample from her, submit that as DNA to the point of exclusion. Here's what's key, though. You remember what I said about manual strangulation? It's a very personal event. I mean, it is the most intimate of homicides that can occur. It's a primal response to fight somebody off if you're being choked or being strangled. Okay. My thought is this. They have done nail scrapings and probably nail clippings. And if folks will essentially look down the long axis of their fingernail and you see how curved your fingernails are, essentially when you scratch, that's not just passive DNA. We're not talking about sharing a space with somebody where his DNA gets on her and all that sort of thing. We're talking uh -huh. about curled up skin, 
tissue blood that's protected beneath this. And that takes us up to another level. How's the defense explain that away? How can they actually say that, you know, yeah, for good reason, she would have his tissue beneath her fingernails. That's not something that would happen in the normal course of life, like touch DNA, where we slough skin cells and they fall away. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about literally, if you think about an unplowed field and you take a plow and you drag it across and it creates its furrows, whatever they're doing with the nail clippings and the nail scrapings they took, that went to the crime lab maybe the national lab with the FBI or maybe the state crime lab uh, in Wyoming, but they're, they're going to be analyzed very, very carefully. And, and in your yeah. experience, um, you know, testifying in these cases, the person that strangles somebody to death, who is that person usually? Is it a stranger? In my, in my experience and also teaching at university like I do, we talk about intimate, intimate violence. You're more at risk in our country in case of homicide, you're more at risk of losing your life to somebody that you know in your circle, as opposed to some stranger. That's Hollywood fiction. It happens, but it doesn't happen to the level that domestic disputes happen that end in some kind of fatal event. That's what you're looking at. It's intimate personal person violence. Right now, Brian Laundrie is the only person of interest in her disappearance. Right. They, they don't even say, you know, tied to the homicide. Right. Um, and they are, he is wanted on a federal arrest warrant for bank fraud. Both attorneys admitted that he took money out of her bank account. Mm -hmm. How bad do things look for Brian Laundry? Let's just play a game and say, are we aware of any intimate friends that Gabby Petito had in Wyoming? I'm not, I haven't heard. Is there anybody in Wyoming that held a grudge against her? I guess you could say that some mysterious stranger came out of the dark and perpetrated this crime. But remember what I just said about intimate one-on-one -on -one crimes. They require this passion-driven uh, thing that's going on. Who would dislike Gabby Petito so desperately in Wyoming, in one of the most isolated places in Wyoming, to wrap their hands around her throat and choke the life out of her? That's the question that needs to be asked. Now, I don't know what the status of Mr. Laundry is other than the feds are looking for him. But I know this, when they file those charges relative to this bank transaction, the feds did something really interesting. People have talked about those charges as being kind of innocuous, that sort of thing. It's not, because once they flip the switch on that, automatically, we talk about the FBI and how great they are as investigators. They then invoked the power of the U.S. Marshal Service. And this is what they do for a living, okay? They're looking for him actively. They go hunting mm -hmm. for people that are on the loose. And so he's got the full weight of the feds bearing down on him wherever he is and whatever context he's in right now. I have no idea. But suffice it to say, they're going to look under every rock they can. Is there anything about this situation that helps Brian Laundry? I guess there could be room for reasonable doubt because he's made himself scarce and he's lawyered up. That's the biggest thing in his defense at this point in time. He hasn't said anything. I mean, it's very frustrating for everybody in the public, but you know, in our country, we have a right to remain silent and he's chosen to do that. I think that's the biggest mark for him. Now, I, again, I think that right now there are people all over this country that are making judgments about this case. This case is on the radar in Wyoming. Trust me. They don't have a huge populace out there 
they're aware of it. And so anybody that might be on a jury, they're watching this. They're aware of it. They're reading this in their papers and watching the news over coffee every morning. They're talking about it because things like this just, they happen, but they don't happen like this. Certainly the glaring light of the media doesn't show up. And look, high marks to Dr. Blue. He's never had this kind of spotlight on him. And it's really amazing. Right. And wasn't it really, really interesting when he actually made that comment as a corner about domestic abuse? Did he give anything away? He basically said that Gabby was a victim of domestic violence. That was striking to me because you didn't expect that utterance to come from a coroner. And for me, that was amazing. And it really gave an insight into his communication with anybody else that's involved in this case in the periphery. All of the other investigators, trust me, they've been talking and there's something else that he did as well. He narrowed down that date when she was last seen. The last time she was known to be with him was on the 27th. It's later that day where the bloggers see Gabby's van parked over. It's the same day. It's only 31 miles away. Out there, 31 miles is a very short distance. Here in our metropolitan areas where we live, it's a very long distance. But there, that's close. And so they would have covered that distance. And that's the last time that they really know. He made some mention of the 29th or the 30th. And so automatically that kind of narrows it down. And in a, in a case like this, where you have a body that is decomposed, it's very difficult to narrow those time frames down. We traditionally can't do better than a week most of the time, but he really kind of revealed a bit of insight in that respect as well. To me, that tells me he's talking and engaging with the authorities. Now, just a day before we got those results, we got another big break in a missing persons case, one that you may not have heard about. On Monday, authorities searching for Lauren Cho in Joshua Tree National Park found a set of human remains. Like Gabby, Lauren was from our area and was on a cross-country trip. And like Gabby, she had been missing for weeks. And while it could be weeks until we know whether those remains are identified, it raises the question. Why is the whole world talking about Gabby and not other cases like Lauren's? To get to the bottom of that question, we sat down with Amanda Coleman, a producer and researcher with Wondery's The Vanished Podcast. They tell the stories of missing people who don't always make the headlines. The Gabby Petito case has really drawn attention to the fact that there are so many missing persons cases out there that, one, don't get nearly as much coverage, but two, also it's difficult to get them off the ground and running, right? Get police to want to investigate them and take them seriously. How do you choose the cases that you end up profiling? So we uh, mostly rely on our case submission form, which is located on our website. Also, there are links to it on our social media. And we ask that a family member, a friend, coworker, law enforcement, or other forensic professional submit the case that they'd like to have covered because our show is interview-based. So we need to talk to people who know the missing person. And so that's where our cases come from. Okay. And have you found that your work helps the families? Does it help the investigation, you know, proceed or move along? hands down, it helps the families. They, a lot of times, can't get a law enforcement to answer the phone or get a local media to cover the case or even get somebody to hang a poster and to have someone listen to them and let them tell their story and give them a platform is so validating to them. To law enforcement, it's a creative tool we have had cases in the past, one case that we covered that also is an act of intimate partner violence. We interviewed 
the husband, his wife disappeared in 1979, and that opened up a door for police to use that interview to go and talk to him. And he was wow. sentenced to life in prison in 2019. Wow. So that, that led to a conviction as well. Led to a conviction. And I, sh she's not ever been recovered. That was a nobody homicide, but the podcast was directly credited with leading them to be able to open that door to talk to him. And I want to say he was late seventies, early eighties when he got a life sentence. So any sentence at that age is a life sentence, of course. Are any cases that you have covered on your podcast that are similar to Gabby's? Absolutely. A couple of names come to mind. Savannah Spurlock, another young woman, Paige Johnson. Both of those women ultimately found deceased. Their cases are still pending in court. So their alleged murders were committed by males in a dating setting. They both are also white women, maybe not from the same means, maybe have different family backstories. But we also have covered many other young women. We covered Akia Eggleston. We covered Luzea Mathis. Both of those were young women of color who were pregnant. And those cases are also still pending criminal action. But their alleged murders were committed by the alleged father of the child. And so we see this a lot. And, you know, one of the questions that has, a, that has come up with the Gabby Petito case is, why is it that some missing person cases draw so much attention? I mean, the level of attention that was put on Gabby Petito's case is nothing that you remember, right, seeing in recent years even. Actually, no, I would say that there's probably about one per year. If you recall back to 2018, we had Molly Tibbetts in Iowa. We also had Jamie Kloss. Earlier this summer, we had Summer Wells, who, of course, is a very young woman, a uh, little girl. Back in 2010, we had Kyron Horman, one of the only times um, a male child um, has been featured so prominently. This, it does happen. A few, probably one to two cases a year get this level of media attention. And why do you think it attracts so much attention? I would like to believe that it's unique circumstances or an interesting story. Like if you take Gabby, she's on this adventure. She's crossing the country with her boyfriend. She's posting about it. It's easy to follow. It's engaging. But the criminological side of that points to missing white woman theory. And we do see that women aged approximately 18 to 34 do get a, a disparate amount of attention from the media when they disappear. And especially if they have a large social media presence, but there is a huge, huge disparity. There's a gender gap, an age gap, a socioeconomic gap. Um, but that I think that that is, those are the cases that get the attention. Are there so the immense attention that the Petito case has given, you know, in within and outside the true crime community? Do you think that that has really helped and fueled interest in what you do? Well, temporarily, yes. We saw this back in 2018 on our podcast with Molly Tibbetts. We've seen it with several other cases. There is a, a temporary flutter of attention 
I know personally, a number of my friends have reached out to me and said, oh my gosh, I had no idea that there are so many missing people. I had no idea that this is an actual problem. You know, I, I didn't realize this. And to me, that's, that's like a completely foreign concept, but also I'm inundated in this, um, in, in my life, but on the negative side, it, I feel that it has been harmful to the work that we do in specifically targeting cases that don't get any coverage because imagine being a family member or with a missing daughter or a missing sister or your best friend's missing and you can't get anyone to pick up the phone. You can't get um, a reporter to call you back. Law enforcement doesn't wanna take a report and you turn on your TV or you go to your social media and all you see is Gabby Petito and all you see is obsession and speculation over the bumper stickers on her van and what was she wearing and you see that and that's soul crushing that is soul crushing to these people and I've had many family members tell me that why why is my loved one not worthy well, what are some of the takeaways you could take from Gabby's case, right? I mean, that could probably, is, is there anything you could take away from this case to direct the same sort of attention for these other missing person cases? Because they did actually renew searches for some people after, you know, word of her case became, you know, went viral, really. And they were able to find some people and they're in the process of identifying others. First, I'll address this as someone who was a law enforcement professional. Law enforcement, we need to be doing better. There is no jurisdiction in the United States that has a law that puts a waiting time on reporting someone missing. Most law enforcement officers don't know that. They'll tell you 24 hours, 48 hours, they're an adult, they're allowed to go missing. There's no law that says that. They're repeating what they've been told their entire career. What about jurisdiction? Because that came up during the Gabby Petito case. Um, her parents called Northport police trying to file a missing persons report, and they told her they couldn't because she was last possibly in Utah or Wyoming. What about that? So I'm actually dealing with that right now, um, right here. I live in Dallas, Texas. I'm dealing with um, a case that we covered recently in Fort Worth, but the woman's remains were found several counties north. And uh, there has been a lot of jurisdictional pointing of fingers. Um, she was actually found on federal land. And honestly, this is what it comes down to. They can take a report. There's nothing barring them. They could easily call the agency where the person was last seen. The issue is, I think, lack of training. You don't learn about missing persons in the academy. It is a gray area of crime because there's no inherent crime in an adult disappearing. And so in your law enforcement officer brain, you think, well, I, have, I don't have any probable cause that a crime occurred, so why would I take a report? That's the law enforcement side of things. And I think the improvement on that is take the report, trust what the family says because they know the missing person. They know what's characteristic of them. And treat it like a crime until you have evidence that no crime occurred. That needs a, that's a major shift we need to have in this country with missing persons. And I understand that that's a huge resource strain. As far as family goes, know that there's no waiting period. When you call or you go in and they tell you it's 24 hours, be that person. No, there's not. Show me where it says that. I need to file a missing persons report. Trust your gut. If you feel as 
I'm familiar with uh, Gabby's case just a little bit that her parents felt something wasn't right when she stopped checking in. Trust your gut. Make that missing persons report as soon as your gut tells you that something is wrong because the sooner you get, are able to get that report, the sooner agencies can figure out who's in charge of what and who, where the person was last seen and who needs to be doing what. Be the squeaky wheel. And Gabby's parents have been great about that. And even in saying, we're so blessed that our daughter got all of this coverage and attention, but all missing persons deserve that. And I thank them for recognizing that fact. We look forward to listening about these stories on your podcast, The Vanished. Thank you so much, Amanda, for joining us this time. Of course. And that's it for The Debrief. I'm Paisy Cheng. We'll see you next week.